Here we are back with another episode of Research Conversations. Today, we have David J. with host Vivale. Well, welcome to our podcast, David. I'm happy you could actually visit Thank the you. research uh, yeah. home office where I've been for practically 40 decades. The inner sanctum. Yeah, and and I, you know, we haven't ever been in the same room that much, but I'll tell you how I found out about you. I was the first American hired to start Rough Trade London in America. Right. And because it was because I did Search and Destroy, and they figured I kind of knew a lot of people and sure. you know would be yeah. well positioned. And so being lazy, I rented the first Rough Trade office literally one block away. Okay. Because I hate commuting. Yeah. And well, I had to do many things there, but I also had to actually um, work in the retail end. Right. You know, meeting the, the real people. And Americans, I don't know, they don't seem to be as informed as British people to me. And maybe it's because I work at City Lights. I read all four of the British music weeklies every week. We got them. Mm. And so I would think I knew more than a lot of people about what was happening in England. Maybe that's something to do with the fact that England's such a small place. And, uh, I mean, I'm thinking like pre-internet. You're talking about this time. Um, so information's passed around more quickly and, you know, readily between friends and co-conspirators, you know. Now, you mean? No, I mean, like, pre. I'm thinking pre-internet. Oh, yes. But now, now it's more universal because of the internet, the dissemination of in information. But you still think that the you still think that the British and the Europeans are more informed than the Americans? The press is better, or more of it. Mm. The, those weeklies had to fill tons of column inches every week. Yes, and the, I think that made them much fairer towards covering the underground at that time. And the we're talking seventy five, seventy six, because uh, um, punk started. I'm guessing in. New York more, 73 with Patti Smith, 75 in, in Andy Warhol's interview. I read the first Ramones interview. Yes. And it was around that time that the British started really promoting in those weeklies. Yeah. But America was a cultural desert, kind of. And I don't want to discourage you because you're starting a tour now. <laughs> well, I know America very well, so you know I have no delusions or false impressions of the place. I mean, it's ch changed radically, as has most of the world, since I started touring in the late 70s. But America's always been great for me and my bands. Mm. We're always treated really well, and uh, we always love coming over here. That's why we all live here now. Oh. Yeah. I'll tell you my experience. I thought I was so hip, quote-unquote, working at City Lights and track starting to track what I later became known as punk and as early as 73. I ordered Patti Smith's first book called Wit in 73 for City Lights Bookstore. Yeah. And I could just tell this is something was going to happen. Yeah. A whole wave of cultural change. Yeah, that was very early on, though, for you to pick up on that. That's my job, I yeah. guess. <laughs> you have good antennae. <laughs> yeah. But I'm, I am working my way to you because... Um, it was like a bombshell at Rough Trade, that tiny store one block away. Yeah. When we got 
and there weren't many of those then. This gorgeous cover, 12-inch 45, and it said Bauhaus. Are they from Germany? You know how your mind works. Bala Lugosi's dead. Is this punk? Um, and we just played, I played that record over and over for people and talked many people into buying because I think they were just, if anything, they were expecting fast punk. I don't know what mm. Americans mm. were expecting. Mm. But I'd play this and they'd kind of go into a little trance and often they'd buy the record because of my enthusiasm. Yeah. But I think it was really radical. It, see, that's what I'm saying. I was alive then. When it arrived, and we got many other things, too, that we'd never heard of any of this, by the way, hardly. Mm. Like another one around the same time I loved was by Rima Rima, whoever they are. Yeah, I love around that record as well. Oh, good. Yeah. Same time about. That's right. And I promoted both of them working as a yeah. clerk in that store. And that was on 4AD. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, that's an abstraction to me. Tell me about 4AD. Are they an indie label? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was one of the premier indie indie labels that we eventually signed to. I mean, uh, Bella Lugosi's Dead was released on Small Wonder Records, mm. and then uh, we went from Small Wonder directly to 4AD, and they had a record store in Earl's Court called Beggar's Banquet, Ooh. and um, and then the label Beggar's Banquet that was affiliated to that store. But uh, there were two guys um, who worked at the store: Ivo Watts Russell and. Uh, Peter Kent, and they started their own subsidiary label. It was sort of like a, it was a subsidiary to Beggar's Banquet, but they were more, they were more indie. Beggar's were more, um, they were an independent label, but they were more pop oriented. Um, so 4AD were much more underground, and uh, the label really reflected a taste mainly of Ivo to a degree. Peter as well, and um, they they signed us, and we released a second single called Dark Entries on mm -hmm. 4AD. Um, they actually it was originally called Axis, and they put out this single on the Axis label. Then found there was another label called Axis, so they had to they'd already pressed a bunch of them, so then they changed the name. So the the ones with the Axis label are super rare. Wow. There's only a few of those. I've got. I got two, <laughs> but that was a great label for us to to go to from Small Wonder, and then we did the first album in Flatfield on 4AD, and then eventually moved on to Beggar's Banquet because we were becoming very popular in England, and um, we sort of outgrew 4AD to to a degree, and it was a an amicable uh, transition. Also, Ivo thought that we were becoming something other than the type of band that would be identified with his label so less less underground which is true to to a degree you know i can understand that point of view but that that was the uh, that was the journey there and then we stayed with beggar's banquet forgive my ignorance but was this in london or yeah london it's in london. in london yeah Wait, did you grow up in London? No, we, we all grew up so. in Northampton, which is in the Ooh. Midlands. It's about 70 miles north of London. Is that near Sheffield? I've been there. Mm, it's south of Sheffield. Sheffield oh. is more north. Oh. Yeah, but we used to go down to London all the time to see bands, you know. Mm. Pre-punk on the, uh, the, the pub rock scene. We used to go to all the pubs like the Hope and Anchor and the Nashville Rooms and see bands like Dr. Feelgood and yes. um, K-1. 
Kilburn and the High Rose, which was Ian Dury's first band. Uh, uh, Stranglers started on that circuit. Um, and then it sort of kind of mutated into punk. And a lot of those venues uh, were venues for the punk rock scene as well. Yeah, I'd I, I love to hear more about pre-punk, the, the poor bands that didn't get to cash in or something, but, you know, they were very important and they had their own integrity about what they were doing. There was, wasn't there? Yeah, there, there was a tra transitional stage and it only lasted about a year, really. <laughs> From like, you know, 75, it was 75, 74 into 75, yeah. and then 76, bam, explosion, you know. And but I, put, I first saw a flyer, which I've still got to this day, in, in, the, in uh, the Hope and Anchor, and I was there to see Ian Dury's band, Kilburn and High Rose. Johnny Lydon was there, who I didn't know, I didn't know because he wasn't known then, but I, I recognised him because he had a very singular look. He was actually dressed like uh, James Dean in his red bomber jacket. His hair slicked back, um, and he was down the front. But there was a poster that he probably pinned to the wall there for the Sex Pistols playing at the 100 Club. Um, this is in 76. And I went to that gig. You know, the Clash were the support band, although we didn't know who the Clash were at the time. It was just, oh, this good name, you know. And then um, blown away by them. And that was when Keith Levine was still in the band, really early five-piece band. We recognised the guitarist as this kid that we would see at all these pub, pub rock gigs and we, we really admired his style. He was just this really super sharp dandy. But he dressed real rock and roll, lots of scarves, dead tight trousers, leather jackets, and like a kind of uh, a rooster haircut. And then here he was playing guitar with his haircut short and a paint-splattered shirt. And it was Mick Jones. So it's like, oh, it's like Keith. <laughs> and then the pistols came on, and that was it. Forget about it. <laughs> you know, I went with my brother, Kevin. And we, we decided to start a punk band that night, which we did. Played the first gig like three weeks later in Northampton, much to the disdain of the, <laughs> the regular pub goers. They couldn't, they, they couldn't get their heads around it. But there was a very small punk contingent. This is the... Really early on, so it's like seven punks in the, you know, in the town, all were there, and then we became their band, of course, because we were the only band, the Submerged Tenth. Is that the name of the band? Yeah, it means oh. the lowest of the low. The Submerged Tenth. It, that's like the one percent of the one percent, yeah. or something. Yeah. <laughs> wow. How, in our country here, or America, I remember the first time I heard one percenter saw it was I, I happened to know all these Hells Angels mm. and that was one of their little of course, yeah. badges yeah. or something, one percenter. Yeah. Which means an entirely different thing, like the opposite in a way to <laughs> the other meaning. Right. You got it. Wow. So tell me again about your your musical I mean you obviously had some talent, but then again everyone I knew grew up with piano lessons. We had a little bit of talent, but a lot of enthusiasm. And we kept sticking at it for so long that in the end, you know, we did develop the talent that was there <laughs> to the degree that was necessary for us to realize the music that was in our heads and to create something original, you know. We just wanted to satisfy ourselves, really. 
primarily. This is Bauhaus I'm talking about. Yeah. But none of us were, were formally trained or anything like that. I mean, I, I learned by listening to the radio and just playing along on a really cheap guitar, you know, <laughs> just two T-Rex records and Bowie records. Well, at least your parents bought you the guitar. Or did you buy it yourself? No, I, I had a, like a weekend job and saved up my pocket money. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it was a terrible guitar, though. And then that became my first bass, when nobody wanted to play bass. You know, everybody wanted to be the lead guitar player and show off. But I volunteered to play bass because I liked reggae. That was the first music I ever really got into, like really early reggae. And I used to sneak into skinhead clubs when I was 13. And, uh, and I, you know, connected that sound with the bass. And it was always like a big part of the sound. So I thought, oh, well, I like the bass. So, so I took the top two strings off of this terrible guitar. It was a shiny red thing. Japanese, horrible. You could put your hand under the strings, the action was that high. And then anyway, I turned the bass up full on my horrible little <laughs> guitar amp and the treble all the way down, whacked up the volume. That was my first bass setup. So okay. one, once I got a Fender Precision, uh, you know, that was a luxury. And again, I got a factory job for six weeks in a, an aerial, J-beam aerials in Northampton, bending aluminium rods at, into right angles on a machine for six weeks nearly drove me insane. But by the end of it, I got a, a bass, you know. <laughs> you mean a Fender bass? Yeah, yeah, the real thing. But I thought that was ingenious to take two strings off and make your own. Well, it had no option because that was, you know, it was, that's all I had to work with. Right. Yeah, it was pretty punk. And lim <laughs> Yeah, and limited <laughs> funds, too. Yeah. That's, Which that's is also, right. I think, punk. I think... Everyone I knew in the old days, no one bragged that they had a 40-hour-a-week job. It was the opposite. You worked just enough. Yeah. So you could have plenty of time to practice or, you know, read whatever. Yeah. I mean, leisure time was consciously, you know, sought after so you could do well, your own thing. Well, it was, you know, we were all on the dole because, you know, that's like when you haven't got a job and you sign on. And you oh, get these. The yeah, the, the, the doll. We don't have the that here. No, social security. Um, uh, it's a different thing, though. But we, you'd have to go to a job center and you have interviews for awful jobs, which you didn't really want. You'd rather just get the pittance they gave you, which was just enough to get by, just about, and then play gigs and get money for that illegally, you know. A little bit of money. and Maybe they call it under the table? Yeah, but occasionally you'd have to get a job because you'd got, you really, really were stone broke. So um, you'd get a job, yeah, for, for four weeks or six weeks until you got the sack, which was quite likely. And then you just saved up that money and, and blew it all on lager and speed and guitar strings. Well, you must have bought a record now. And then. Oh yeah, and records, absolutely records. Yeah, but, but there weren't that many records. I mean, exactly. there were very few like punk very... records. That's why yeah. when Don Don Letts started the Roxy, he didn't have any records to play, so he would play reggae. Yeah. But that really worked for my generation. It worked because, like I said, I was into reggae when I was thirteen, and I'm I'm of the age of. My contemporaries are all my age, and so they would have had that similar experience. In England, reggae was a big thing to a certain part of the youth. And uh, because we had a big influx of West Indians in the 50s, you know, so they brought that music over. So there was a lot of great reggae. And in the 70s, the reggae really was, that was a golden period, you know. 
And the 60s preceding it was also great. But I think, to me, the 70s was really the, the, the time, you know. So you'd go down to these independent reggae stores like Greensleeves, you know, Daddy Cools in London, and pick up these imports from Jamaica. So There were 45s, right? 45s and 7 inches. And, 7 inches. And the occasional album. Oh. You know. So oh, that yeah. really, oh, yeah. it really made sense when Don played those records because that to me it's sort of like it's comparable to how the beat groups related to black R&B music from the states you know that they're into that black music that was our black music you know and it is it called northern soul no song it's it? a different no. thing different okay yeah this is pure reggae okay and ska as well yeah. and dub was really dub. influential and certainly on Bauhaus because something like Bela Lugosi is dead that is our interpretation of dub, in a way. It's not trying to be like a Jamaican guy, of course, that oh. would be pointless, but taking that music, just really absorbing that music and not thinking about it and loving it, and it just came out, and those effects are very dub-inspired. So you see, you see that? You oh, see no, I have, I have I, something to tell you. I only had worked 12 hours a week at City Lights bookstore down there, minimum wage, but... I had a friend who had a real job working for the railroad. He was a union member. He was, like, rich. And he would buy... We had a great radio program, uh, uh, Tony Wright, uh, Reggae by the Bay, and we had a great tiny reggae store on Divisadero Street where we'd go every week. They, they would get the weekly shipment from Jamaica on a certain day, and my friend and I would go. But he could afford to buy them. Mm. And then... He he could put them on cassette tape for me. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and I have pictures I've taken of early reggae bands, people that have been forgotten. Because not many came here, but a few mm. did. Mm-hmm. I mean, ones that, uh, Dennis Brown, I mean, mm. just small. They never got really famous, maybe. Tooth of the Maytals, they got big. Dennis Brown's pretty pretty famous. Uh, this is In England, tour. certainly, anyway. Oh, well, this is his first tour up here and okay. he was really young he looked yeah. like yeah. I would, I'm would. i going to have to go back and listen to B- Bela Lugosi's Dead but to hear the dub yeah. <laughs> echo yeah it's, it's actually there in, a, in a, quite a few of our tracks this is an interesting story for me I met up with um, 3D uh, Roger uh, Del Naja from uh, Massive Attack hmm. and who I love uh, this is after they played a gig in LA at the Hollywood, Hollywood Bowl and he came over and he told me this story, which uh, it knocked me out, actually, because he said that he and Tricky, when Tricky was like 16, came to see Bauhaus play a very early gig in, in, um, in Bristol, where they come from. They, were, they had a punk band, like a post-punk band, and uh, they saw us play, and we did Bella Lugosi's live, and he said it completely made us rethink what we were doing, because he said there were these kids who were like, our age, a little bit older, but they were playing music that was obviously influenced by dub, but they weren't trying to be reggae, cod reggae. They were, they were applying it to their own uh, sensibility and their own background. They were four white guys, you know, from the Midlands, but they were taking on board this dub approach. And he said it made us totally rethink what we were doing. And he said that was the start of Massive Attack. So that was amazing for me to hear that, you know. 
Yeah, you never know unless they tell you. Yeah, you're right. I saw this picture the other day online. Of um, it's from a, a film that's coming out about Tricky, and he's wearing a Bella Lugosi's Dead T-shirt. That cover that you're talking about, it's on a T-shirt. Yeah, so it all ties ties in, you know. Wow. You've been listening to Research Conversations with host V. Vale. Today's guest, David J. Please return to hear the rest of the conversation, part two.